Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. Like always, I want to thank our listeners. I really never thought that I would have this many listeners, let alone that people in other countries would ever listen to me. So thank you so much. Now, please remember to rate us five stars on whatever platform you're listening on so that we can get into those recommended lists. It really, really helps us out. And so also, if you can, drop by our Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com forward slash psychicrime. Or if you want to send us a one-time donation, you can use Venmo. It's at psych-your-crime. Remember, it's that time of year, and I definitely wouldn't mind a secret Santa or two. Now, this week, we're looking into the case of Paul Murray, a man who committed famicide. Now, we've talked about family annihilators on here before, and the difference between a family annihilator and famicide is annihilators kill the entire immediate family, while in famicide, they kill part of the family, and it's not exclusive to immediate family. A family-side is type of murder or murder-suicide in which a perpetrator kills multiple close family members in quick succession, most often children, relatives, spouse, siblings, and or parents. In half of the cases, the killer lastly kills themselves in a murder-suicide. If only the parents are killed, the case may be referred to as a parasite. The millicides are used as an enhanced punishment in antiquity, means back in the day. In ancient China, nine familial exterminations was the killing of an entire extended family or your clan. Usually it was done for reasons of treason, and that way you couldn't carry on your family line or or your dynasty. Machiavelli advocated the extermination of a previous ruler's family to prevent uprising in his book, The Prince, which is considered like the modern political playbook. Uh, Sippenfrott was often used in Nazi Germany to punish and sometimes execute the relatives of defectors and anyone involved in the 20 July plot. La Costa Nostra began killing the relatives, including women and recently children, of informants and rivals in the 80s. It's not incorporated formally into any uh, modern-day judicial systems except in Northern Korea, where whole family internment um, happens and often ends in death. Now, studies have been done, and as a, in one study of 909 cases of mass murder, which is defined as victims of four or more within a 24-hour period in the U.S. from 1900 to 2000, more than half occurred within immediate families. So that although the total number of familicide cases are considered to be relatively rare, they are the most common form of mass killing. A study of 30 cases in Ohio found that most of the killings were motivated by a parent's desire to stop what they feel to be their children's suffering. In Australia, a study was done of seven cases of familicide followed by suicide in which marital separation followed by custody and access disputes were identified as the key issue. Some common factors such as marital discord, unhappiness, domestic violence, sexual abuse, threats of self-harm have been found in varying degrees. It's not entirely clear what can be done in terms of prevention. Now, some cases that are considered to be uh, notorious are Robert William Fisher. In 2001, he killed his wife and two of his children and then burned their house down. 
Um, he uh, then went on to be put on the top 10 most wanted list. Kip Kinkle, May 20th, 1998, killed his parents before going to his school and committing a shoe, uh, school shooting spree. Um, he killed two additional people and wounded 25 more. John List, in November 9th, 1971, he killed his mother, his wife, and three children. Uh, Kathrick Najarim, November 7th, 2008, killed his wife, his mother-in-law, three sons, and then himself. The Pir Bir Bikram Shah, June 1st, 2001, allegedly killed the royal family of Nepal at a family dinner. He died later of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Now, Mihir's 35, lived with his parents in Kendall, uh, of Florida. He had been an honor student at Gulliver Preparatory Academy, where he also played baseball at the University of Miami. Records show that he had been arrested in Miami-Dade County in 1998 on a misdemeanor charge of disorderly conduct, and long-term acquaintance referred to him as mentally troubled. Paul Michael Maharange, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, Maharange's aunt on his father's side, Salwa Maharange Abrams, murdered her ex-husband and two children in July of 1973 before overdosing and dying after five days in a coma. She was a popular mezzo-soprano and had given up her opera career to care for her family. After 19 years, her husband, James Adams, a pilot, left her for a flight attendant, and the two divorced. Shortly after the final hearing, Marange Adams asked him over to the family's home in Miami to talk. Unbeknownst to Adams, his former wife had bundled the two children, 14-year-old Jack and 10-year-old Melissa Ann, into the car along with the dog. After shooting Adams four times in the chest, in the master bedroom with a 38 caliber revolver, she invited Jack inside and emptied the gun into his body. She then brought Melissa Ann into a different room where she too was shot and killed. So there is some history of mental illness within this family. She then swallowed a handful of barbiturates and later died at South Miami Hospital. In 2006, Kala Marange, Paul Marange's younger sister, was in such fear of her brother that he would turn violent that she went to court and asked a Miami-Dade judge to keep him away from her. In her request for a restraining order, Carla Marange claimed that her brother had threatened to kill her as well as himself and refused to take medication for his mental illness. Carla, quoting her brother, said that he stood in her face telling her, I'm going to slit your throat, and this time I'm not going by myself, a reference to his latest suicide attempt. According to the document, she said the threats happened on a regular basis and sought the court's help to prevent further incidents of violence and harassment. Despite her fears, Carla voluntarily withdrew her request for a restraining order just three weeks later. Eight years earlier, Paul had sought protection from law enforcement authorities after he accused his sister of trying to kill him. He dropped the request after five weeks. At the time, Paul alleged that Carla had told them that if I had the chance to get away with it, I would kill you. Paul claimed that his sister broke his bedroom door down 
began screaming at him and spit in his face before wrestling him to the floor. He said he was being treated for obsessive compulsive disorder and that Carla and other family members were aware of the treatment but would purposefully harass him and contradict the doctor's orders. He claimed that the family members wanted him to get worse and did not want him to overcome his illness. In his high school yearbook, Paul had put, I love you now and forever as his quote to his family. This obviously did not last. The two images are different, difficult to reconcile. The man who police say harbored a deep hatred for his family and the boy who, was devo who devoted his whole yearbook page to his family, while his peers used their pages to joke about detention and thank God it's over. The guy in the yearbook, that's who I went to high school with, quoted a, a classmate, Jacqueline Kirtley, who sat next to Meringue in AP Biology. The stuff she's seen in the news, she says, we don't recognize that as the same person. How did a 17-year-old that said, I've been so lucky to be blessed with having twin sisters and being able to be your protective older brother, how did that become this person? And how did... Mom and dad, thank you for all that you've given me, turn into allegedly reloading his gun and saying, Dad, I've been waiting 20 years to do this. Moraine's mother has said he had a nervous breakdown at 19 as an honor student at the University of Miami and has battled severe depression and obsessive compulsive disorder ever since. But the picture painted by family members and police reports of Moraine that day is that the breakdown never ended that he became a troubled man, suffering from insomnia, obesity, a receding hairline, and ongoing OCD, repeatedly bathing and shaving over and over and over again, struggling to make decisions and unable to hold a job. He skipped his medicine at times, attempted suicide multiple times, and routinely threatened to kill one of his sisters. All of this sounded nothing like the person that Kurtley and her schoolmates knew in 1992. Meringue graduated third in his class from Gulliver Prep, a pricey haven for the children of Miami's well-to-do. He played football, baseball, and soccer. He led the French Honor Society. He was driven and mature, handsome and fit, personable and quiet, well-liked if not precisely popular. He was a smart kid, so but none of us were exactly that popular, Curtly said. Still, he was a success story in the making. I thought he'd be running a company or a business or something like that, said Bob Schweed, who was Meringue's football coach. Meringue pushed himself really hard, Schweed recalled. He was a kicker, and kicking is a specialty, not something that can be taught and practiced. So he practiced on his own. In class, he was confident and he always had a plan. He was gonna go to U of the University of Miami and become a doctor, according to another classmate. While Meringue still, excuse me, it seemed like he just had everything going for him while other people were still fuddling around. Meringue often debated people over the Bible and whether everyone believes it or not. Meringue stated that he did it. Even at 17, he was worried he was going to go bald. 
I guess his father didn't have a lot of hair, so he tried to start using Rogaine in high school as a preventative measure. In her yearbook, he congratulated her on getting into MIT and complimented her personality and praised her zest to experience life and gave a friendly word of warning. You better watch out for those northern guys. For some reason, I don't think they have what it takes to treat you right. What she hears now just doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't jive with the person that I knew. Didn't a, did a slight start? Did a slight between two people start a build up to rage? For now, people don't seem to be sure, but there are a few obvious guesses. Specialists say mental illness often comes out in college. Pre-existing conditions triggered by stress and drastic life changes, state Kevin Beaver, a professor of the Florida State University. Those different mental disorders can feed into violence. But the movement from breakdown to violence is often very gradual, says Dr. Stephen Alexander, a practicing psychologist who was once the chief psychologist for the Palm Beach Circuit Court. It starts with a slight, real or perceived. Perhaps after the breakdown, Meringue was jealous of his sister's success. Perhaps he felt like a failure and needed someone to blame. Perhaps it was something else entirely. Whatever it was, it was likely something, and that became a slight. And that slight became resentment, and that resentment became rage. And Meringue has OCD, or even, as a profile by the U.S. Marshal Service implies, he merely thinks he does, that would give him an excuse to revisit those feelings, to turn them over in his mind. Over time, the bitterness and unhappiness and bad feelings would crystallize. And then he starts thinking about killing. At first, Alexander says, it would be a little like standing at the edge of a tall building. Most people will think, what if I jump? And then feel a strong unease and then walk away. So he thinks, what if I kill them? And the thought passes. But then it comes back. And it comes back till it's settled in and it's dug grooves inside his mind. For Meringue, Alexander said, it could be legitimized because of his family's history of violence and mental illness. Meringue's aunt having killed her husband and children in the 70s. Now, remember, that makes Meringue's aunt a family annihilator. She killed her husband and two children and then tried to kill herself. Again, the OCD would make it worse, giving him an excuse to come back to the idea over and over. Eventually, the idea would become more concrete and would start including where he would start including where he would go and how he would do it. Meringue sat through three hours of Thanksgiving Day dinner and sing-alongs around the piano, plotting the moment he would start to fatally shoot his relatives. After opening fire, Meringue was heard saying he'd waited 20 years to do this. There were no arguments, there were no warning signs or red flags, just a rampage, says Jim Sutton, whose six-year-old daughter was killed. Meringue also shot his 79-year-old aunt to death and killed his twin sisters, one of whom was pregnant. He had the whole thing pre-planned. His goal was to shoot his sisters and punish his parents, Sitton said. Court records show in the weeks before the mill, he had painstakingly and discreetly spent $2,000 on at least four guns and ammunition in two Broward County gun shops. 
He even asked for a scope to be attached to a bolt-action Remington 700 rifle. He said he wanted to use it for hunting. Morang had been asking his parents for days about Thanksgiving, but never committed to attending. Remember, he had been estranged from his family for a while. And his parents never alerted the hosts, Jim and Muriel Sutton, his aunt and uncle, that he might be coming. When he called that evening to announce he was on his way, his mother couldn't re resist thinking, I hope he doesn't kill us all. She said that it had come to her mind. And she just said she didn't say it. She just thought it. And she feels bad that she even thought it. And she talked about it with her daughter. And her daughter remembered saying, don't say that to dad because dad would get upset that we even would think such things. Now, in October of 2011, Morang pled guilty after making a deal that would spare him the death penalty. He ended up receiving seven life terms instead. As you might expect, the case caused a huge rift in the family, both emotionally and legally. Morang's brother-in-law, Patrick Knight, who lost his wife, and was himself gravely wounded in the shooting, said he was eager to move on from the tragedy instead of enduring years of appeals. So, you have to picture this. He killed both of his sisters, and one of his sisters was pregnant, so he killed his uh, soon-to-be niece. He killed his aunt, his 79-year-old aunt, and then he killed his other niece who he actually stopped and thought about it first because she was in bed sleeping. And then he went ahead and shot her while she was in bed. And at times he has stated that he does um, regret killing her. He doesn't so much talk about the sisters and his aunt. He also did shoot his brother-in-law um, and a couple of other people, but those are the people he killed. And he says that he regrets shooting, killing his niece because he felt like this was not about her. Uh, Michaela's father, Jim Sutton, begged the judge not to accept the deal. He even fell on his knees in the courtroom. The Suttons also filed a lawsuit against Morang's parents, alleging that they'd invite him to the gathering without warning the hosts that their son could be dangerous. The lawsuit was eventually dismissed in 2012 after it was determined the Morangs had no legal right or ability to control the actions of their son. But that isn't the only suit filed in the wake of the murders. Patrick Knight also sued his former in-laws for failing to prevent the killings, including the death of their daughter, his wife, Lisa. Then the Morangs filed a countersuit against the Suttons in 2011, alleging the Suttons were to blame for the bug bath. To the extent Paul had problems, the entire family knew that. If the Suttons were concerned he was going to be a problem that day, they should have stopped them. It was their house. They should have protected the family as well as the Morang family if they were that concerned about him. So basically there's a lot of back and forth and blame. So his in-laws are saying, you should not have allowed your son to come here or you should have warned us that he was violent. So this is your fault. And then his parents are saying, well, if you're that concerned and you were that scared of him, then you shouldn't have allowed him in your house. Um, it's just, it's really, really tragic, you know, that this thing happened. 
and rather than coming together as a family and trying to help each other heal, they're too busy pointing fingers at each other and blaming each other for what happened. Also named in uh, in the lawsuit, the Marines also claim Jim Sutton has defamed them with unfair and untrue statements about the couple by saying they invited Paul to the dinner without notifying other members knowing he had a reputation for violence. They also named Dr. Antoine, jo Antoine Joseph, whose wife was murdered by Meringue. Joseph is Muriel Sutton's father. His sister is Carol Meringue, so she's the aunt that he killed. Joseph had apparently treated Paul and therefore was well aware of his mental instability, as was the rest of the family his parents contend. And that's incredibly problematic because when you are a mental health provider, you can provide talk therapy. And if you're a psychiatrist, you can put somebody on meds, but you can't guarantee someone will stay on their meds. A lot of times it's um, that circular reasoning of mental health where people will believe, um, okay, I'm better, so I don't need my meds anymore. Not I'm better because of my meds. And then they'll stop taking their meds or you know, even if you're in just talk therapy, you can't guarantee that they're going to stay in a well headspace. So you can't blame a therapist. Also, HIPAA is attached. And the HIPAA that is attached to mental health and, and uh, any type of psychiatric or mental health uh, type of services is much bigger than the HIPAA that is attached to just um, when you go see a regular medical doctor. And the reasoning for that is kind of specifically because of this, because when you go to see a psychiatrist or a mental health professional, a lot of people with mental illness do commit crimes because they're mentally ill. And when you go see someone, you want to be able to say, I did X, Y, and Z, and I felt this way, this way, and this way, and this is what pushed me into doing it. And you want to know they're not going to go to the police and they're not going to turn you in and you're going to be able to talk through it and you're going to be able to try and find ways to deal with your emotions and your feelings without being violent and without committing crimes. And so the HIPAA laws or the doctor-patient privileges are a little different when it comes to um, any type of mental health care. So what happens is it's not like you see on TV where you just slap them a warrant and you get all the records. The warrants have to be very specific to the person, to a very specific thing that you're looking for. You can't have all the records. Just like if they're in treatment, you can't walk in the building and, and you can't um, interview every single person they're in inpatient treatment with. It doesn't work like that because HIPAA also attaches to everybody there. So they can't have access to everyone. They can't even know, they're not even allowed to be aware that everybody else is there in treatment. They don't have that right. So by them saying that he should have told everybody, no, if, they, if he had told everybody about the things he was thinking, violent or not, he would have been violating his right to HIPAA. And it is a fine line and, and you're only really allowed to divulge if you know for a fact someone is plotting to do something wrong. So like say someone is plotting a school shooting, you know they're plotting it, you know they've purchased weapons, you know they've set it up. Then you can report it to the police. Outside of that, 
you can't really do anything. Someone can tell you they've committed a past crime and you can't say anything because it's a crime that's already been committed. There's no future um, crime going to happen. They're not, they're not a future danger. Um, you can do, when it comes to child abuse, then you can say something. And when it comes to elder abuse, um, you can say something when there's a, a suspicion because it's a little different. But when it comes to regular adults, you really, you can't, you're not allowed to, it's a HIPAA violation. So um, you want people to be able to go and get help so they can stop and break that cycle. And sometimes it's just thoughts. A lot of people have repetitive thoughts of violence without actually acting on those thoughts. And you want them to get help and you want them to deal with those thoughts before they ever act on them. And people will never get help if they know that people will go to the police or they'll tell friends or family members or they'll tell other people. So basically this lawsuit is baseless because they're suing him for not divulging things that came up in sessions. And he can't, he would lose his license, he would lose his livelihood. So it's really unfortunate that this family, instead of coming together and helping each other in their time of need, basically just fell apart and blamed each other for everything that happened. Like he said, this really was 20 years in the making. This is a man who devolved into mental illness and rather than the family kind of coming around him and helping him through it, they kind of in their own individual ways just kind of, you know, parted ways from him. And yes, he was violent and he was having, you know, violent idealizations and it, it just ended in a very unfortunate way. Um, so I hope to see you in two weeks from now when we continue our holiday series with the case of Ronald Gene Simmons, the man who went on a week-long Christmas killing spree that resulted in the deaths of 16 people, including several of his family members. In the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.